This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a, a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that! Well, I would like to welcome to the Sub-70 Podcast the winner of the Sao Paulo International and a great character of the game, Chubby Chandler. Chubby, thanks for taking the time to uh, to do this with us today. I really, really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Looking forward to it. Well, a lot of the, the golfers we've had on here, the guys on all the tours around the world, they love talking about holding trophies and, and winning tournaments. So let's get right on to it. After all the years yeah, on the this, European this, tour. This shouldn't take long, then, eh? Well, it's, <laughs> hey, we got one. We got one. Finally, yeah, you get over one. the finish line. You know, what, what came together in that moment of greatness on a back nine on a Sunday to hold the trophy? Um. It was 1985, and uh, I've been a singularly average to below average tour player in Europe, but I've managed to get by on sponsorship, friends, whatever, whatever. And um, my father passed away in uh, early July that year. And on the the final day, I, I was... I think I shot 71, 71, 68, par six, 71. And I was, I don't know, four or five behind, something like that. And I went, this is sound pretty gross, but I went to the toilet before my round and I had this strange sensation of being close to my dad and he passed away about four months um, before. And I, I went out to go and play Number one with that feeling. Number two, feeling that it was going to be my day. And I remember that over every shot, I just kept saying, this is going to be my day. This is going to be my day. Um, after many different meetings with different psychologists that Darren Clark's been through, I realized that what me muttering to myself over every shot, it's going to be my day was actually putting my brain in neutral. Um, and the best players play neutral all the time. And I played and um, I had a friend, I come from a place called Bolton, which gave me this accent, I thought. And when I got to San Paolo, there was a guy that was a member of the golf club came to me and said, Chubby, 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 I'm from Bolton too. I'll look after you this week. And... Uh, I birdied the 16th. I had about a 20-footer on the 16th, and I birdied. And this guy actually ran on the green to tell me, Chubby, you're tied to the lead. You're tied to the lead. And it was actually all bizarre, because there were, there were a few spectators around. And anyway, I kept muttering it was going to be my day, my day, my day. And I forang to about four feet on the par 5 17th, made that eagle. And then I birdied 18 from about... 12 feet and there was a lot of nap on the greens there those that week and the grain was very like I'd played before in South Africa and if you get if you get it on the right grain you can sort of pretty much know what's going to go in the long way out and I hit this button I actually got to the hole almost before almost before the ball did and uh, watched it sort of go in from above it almost and 
went on and I, I think I won by two in the end and I shot 63 and that sort of feeling actually was never to be really repeated again although I've tried to muster to myself often that it's going to be my day it never worked again but it was it was it was nice to have a win in a 14 year career you want to have one win in a proper proper tournament and and that was it so yeah i know the feeling it's a long time ago but i remember it pretty well it has to be sad. I mean, I know you kind of joke that you didn't play that well, yada, yada, yada. And obviously you played really well. You played professionally for 15 years. And I was talking to Tommy Armour III yesterday, and I said, you're coming on. And T.A. goes, "He's a lot. he was a lot better player than he lets on to be. He, I played a lot of golf with Chubby, and he's, he was a hell of a good player. So after all those years, like it had to be satisfying to get it done when you needed it on a Sunday. Right, it's looking back. Yeah, yeah. It still has to be satisfying that when when you needed it, you had it. Yeah, well, it's it's always nice too because when guys like you uh, want to do what we're doing today and they do a bit of research, there is one win on there. And 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 I did play a lot with Tommy Armour the third, and and he probably gave me a few bad habits because I used to play practice rounds with him because he used to like to have a bet and I like to have a bet. And he bought down the first hole and he pull out these golf bag racing paper and it was it, I didn't need any encouragement on that and, uh, <laughs> I'll never forget it I used to play with him and John Jacobs quite a lot in practice and people would look and think what's this what's this Bolton lad this Lancashire lad doing playing with two Americans but they were they were fun in their own right and I see I've been out on the Champions Tour two or three times with Darren and uh, caught up with Tommy and of course Tommy's brother's working for Darren Yep. So, sort yeah, of completes the circle. Well, and I, I love the era in which you, I, there's a nostalgia, I think, for the guys from, especially the European tour in the 70s and 80s. It was a different era back then, right? I've, I've had Jesper Parnovic on to talk about it, and he was, you know, the money, it was like a traveling circus. There was no money in it. You did it for the love of the game, and you might find, you know, somebody in the top 10 on a Friday or Saturday night at the pub, you know, versus the gym. Looking back at it, was it a hell of a was it a great era to play in, and was it a hell of a lot of fun to be in this traveling circus, going around the world, and, and, and playing golf for a living? The first year I played, um, the very first tournament I played in 1975 was the Portuguese Open, and it was a bit of a shock to me because it was a bit like a golf holiday. Um, the Irish guys, some pretty famous ones like Christy O'Connor Senior, Christy O'Connor Junior, Eamon Darcy, there were about five or six of them, and they get in the bar after the first round. And they'd, they'd have scores from 66 to 76, but they'd be all having a few drinks. There'd be a guy with a squeeze box, there'd be guys with spoons playing the spoons, and they'd be singing Irish songs. And, you know, it's I didn't really know what to expect then because, you know, there wasn't people going in the gym, there wasn't people with trainers, physios and whatever. And like I say, it was just a bit like a boys' golf holiday, which I think is funny because I think the Champions Tour is a bit like that now. Here. Do you think there was something therapeutic about it? And like, in other words, as the modern player, and obviously the play has never been higher, the athletes are bigger, stronger, faster. But was there... 
is it almost healthy at some point in time to have a breather after you're out there grinding it like that? And you think a lot of it was that, I mean, back in that generation where they needed that break from it to go relax, have some fun with your mates, have a dinner, and get it off your mind. It seems like now it would be a, a, a 24-7, 365 grind between your team, your working out schedules being really crazy. Do you do you almost encourage your guys that, hey, you need a night off every now and then or get out of the gym for a day and go explore the city just for your own, I don't know, sanity, for lack of a better word? I think, I think explore the city is an interesting one, certainly in Europe because you go to so- – and the rest of the world, we go to so many iconic places, whereas in America, you tend to go to the, the cities and like this week, we're half an hour out of San Antonio. So you can't sort of keep nipping into the city to see what's going on. Um, but certainly in Europe and, and you know, places like India and Thailand and Japan and whatever, I, I always try and encourage the guys to go and have a look at where they are because if they're not careful, a career goes by and they haven't seen anything in the world yet. They've travelled the world for 15 years. In my, when I played the tour at first, there wasn't, there wasn't any thought of letting your hair down or anything like that. That's what people did. That's what people did. There were, the, you know, there weren't gyms in the hotels for startups, so nobody could go to the gym. And it, that was the way the life was. And on the European tour, I know in my first year, if you didn't finish in the top 20 on the European tour, you made the loss. You made That's a loss. So you didn't make any money. So, did you have a, like another job then when you weren't on tour to help make ends meet at those those years when you weren't playing that great, just to kind of make it work? Or how did you how did you make a full career out of it in that period where there was not that kind of money on tour? Because unbeknown to me, I started doing my job now then, and I went out and got myself sponsors, did a few golf days, and managed to make ends meet by making money outside of my winnings. And then played local golf, uh, local PGA golf to win stuff. And and I remember, I tell guys now that I remember in 1986, the first week out, I finished, I think it was 19th in the Can Open. It was the first tournament. And I think I won two grand. And I remember thinking, that pays for my next six weeks. And the young kids today, their sense of entitlement, so they don't think like that. With with the young players today, is with the opportunities they have, is it almost be, because there's so much they can do and play all over? If you have a, a really good young player, do you almost have to look at that situation as we may not grab everything we need today because we need to think about this five years out versus how do we push so hard when you're 19, 20 years old at those opportunities? Is almost like. Uh, Back in your day, I'm sure if your corporate sponsor came, you'd just take it because you guys need to make ends meet. Now is it a is there a real, I'm guessing, strategy to how you might look at a young player's career? Yeah, that's right. Um, and again, going back to when I first turned pro, there was a golf ball called Uniroyal. And Uniroyal turned up, and Titleist was, as is now, the most popular ball. But Uniroyal were paying some decent money, you know, maybe £500 for the year in those days, decent money. And a few guys, quite a lot of guys, changed to this ball, and it wasn't round. You know what I mean? It was, it was you had to have a, one, you wouldn't, you'd never probably seen one, but they have a ring that's the size of a golf ball that the ball has to go through. Well, every ball, obviously, is now uniform size, 
But then they carried a ring and half the funeral didn't go through the ring. And then they looked look for a smaller one that went a bit further. So he must change a lot. You know, use the clubs that's got them to where they've got to. I think when you go um, further on in your career, you can make a, a, a equipment change easier because of all the technology, the track man, the this, that and the other. The club firms now are unbelievable at putting stuff together. So John Ram, John Ram changed equipment about a month ago seamlessly, absolutely yeah. seamlessly. And, and, you know, I've seen with Matt Wallace the, the work that's got into him from Callaway to try and help him adjust to what he's got. So there's been a lot of, funnily enough, there's not, not been a lot of work on the ends. It's usually the driver that's the one, the driver in the golf ball is the one that's been quite hard to change to. But um, the, the work that goes in from the club manufacturers is, is crazy how hard they work. Is the golf ball the toughest out of all of it, even more than the driver, to get exactly what those guys want at that level? Um, I think the golf ball is a big thing. I think, interestingly, I think the change from a Titleist to anything else is probably the most difficult. I think if you were changing from another ball manufacturer to another one and leaving Titleist out of the equation, I think that's probably easier because I think all the other balls are probably a bit similar. And I think the title is a bit similar, but I think there's a mental side to moving away from the titleist because most of these guys have used the titleist for 10 years as a junior and first three or four years as a pro. So I think that, that change from titleist to something else is probably bigger than the other way, other balls. So when you, you transitioned from being a player, and like you said, you started doing the, you didn't know it at the time, but the management work while you're on tour and you get the the training ground for it. What was the catalyst that said, okay, the playing career is coming to an end. I have an idea to make this work. And then at what point did you know ISM was going to be a a thing and you could make a nice living doing it and you could help people in their careers? Like how did the transition happen and how long did it take for you to to realize you had something pretty special there? Well, probably for about six, six, five, six years from about 1983, I used to book flights and look for hotel deals and cheap car deals and maybe stay different to the rest of the tour for about four or five of my friends. A guy called Michael King that played Ryder Cup, a guy called Carl Mason that I roomed with, uh, another guy called Nick Job. So I think there, that, that looking back, that was me starting doing what I do now. Um, and that probably grew a bit. And then as I got to 1988, 89, I, in 87, 88, I was doing some corporate work for a very, very big iconic British company called ICI in South Africa. And I was doing this corporate work, which was usually golf days the day after the tournament finished, which the tournament finished Saturday, so we'd have the golf days Sunday with these clients of ICI. And we got John Bland um, to help in South Africa with me, and he was obviously a top player there. And the boss of ICI in South Africa was a guy from Manchester called Mike Parker. And he then transferred back to Britain in 89 and took over ICI Colours and Colours and Fine Art, uh, Fine something. Um, anyway, it was, they dealt with all the um, Japanese camera companies, you know, Fujifilm and Nikon and all these people. And these 
Japanese clients were coming to Britain. So he said to me, I want to re redo the deal we had in South Africa in Britain. I said, well, I'm beginning to wind down, you know, so I was beginning to become less competitive. I was becoming, it was becoming a chore, missing cuts, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I said to him, I said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I said, I hear what you say. I know exactly what you want. I will get a couple of guys. We'll put the logo on them, which was a big deal because it was possibly the biggest British company at the time. Get two players to put the logo on, and I'll manage the program. And that was the start of ISM. I went out. I went out at the European Open in September '89. I found four or five of my pals that didn't have management companies. I said, "I'm going to do this." There's no downside for you. I'll just take 20% or 25% of anything I get you. And off we go. And then, of course, I get this big company to sponsor two of them. And then the rest, rest history because everybody sees this. And anybody that hasn't got a management company or weren't happy came to me and said, but what can we do? And probably by the middle of 1990, I had probably about 15 of my pals I was managing. Um and it was good, you know, I felt, I felt involved and whatever. But the big break came in August 1990 when a young kid called Darren Clark wanted to talk to me about whether he should turn pro or not. And it wasn't about management, and we had this conversation for an hour about the advantage of turning pro then rather than waiting for a year as an amateur and play the Walker Cup in Ireland, which would obviously be a big deal for him. And he... Uh, after an hour, he looked at me and said, okay, I just want to play golf. Can you do everything else? And I, you know, I'm not going to say no or maybe or anything. I said, yeah, yeah, of course I can. So that was how we went on. And then he said, what about a contract? And I said, well, Arnold Palmer and Mark McCormack never had a contract. They just shook hands and got on with it. And he said, right, that's what we'll do. And we, we still haven't got a contract down in there. He's still, way to do it. He's still, Gentlem he's still on that agreement. same handshake. Yeah, yeah, that same handshake. And uh, I then played with him about a week later, and uh, he had three iron on about the 10th shot we played, and it sort of went, it was 200 yards, and it went about 100 feet in the air, came down soft about five feet away, and I thought, I've got a business here, this kid's going to be very, very good. And that's basically what happened. And once he'd signed, then we got a lot of the young amateurs at the same time. So people like Paul McGinley, Andrew Coulter, um, those sort of guys, David Howe, all-term pro, Lee Westwood, two years later, um, all-term pro, and uh, off, maybe maybe four years later, Lee. Um, and with that Walker Cup match that he would have played in 1991, we went to watch as a guest of the guy that introduced us, who was a Dublin lawyer, and uh, called Dougie Heather. And we went to these guests. And as Darren would do, he'd have half a dozen pints of Guinness at lunchtime. And one of the amateurs, one of the players, and I can't remember who it was, but he topped it. And he looked at me and he says, you're right, Chubby. They look like a bunch of amateurs. <laughs> mindset. Beach right, shit. he had the mindset. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you, when you saw Darren Clark and, and, and you meet him when he's young, and that is it... And the same question I have is for Lee Westwood. Is it is it physical talent? Is it the mental side? Is it 
the spirit of competition where you know they won't crumble? Is it when you when you saw those guys, could you see essentially call it what it is, greatness? I mean, both their careers have been unbelievable. Could did you recognize it right away that these guys were really really special? Um, yes, with Darren, uh, a little bit longer with Lee, but Lee was much more the mental side and. Um, he was incredible when he turned pro. It was 1995, I think, he turned pro, not in '93. And um, he definitely uh, didn't do disappointment. You know what I mean? He, he, he played, and if something went wrong, he just said, well, I'll learn from that, and moved on. And that's a fantastic trait to have as a golfer. A lot of the golfers get bogged down with disappointment and focus on the negative things that happen to them rather than the positive things. So with Lee, it was, it was slightly longer. Darren, it was instant. Then Lee got a game to match his attitude, and then he became a serial winner in the late 90s. He won, I think he won 24 times in four years at the end of the 90s. So his was a Darren... Lee's, Lee's took more time, maybe a little... Didn't have the total natural talent that Darren had. But boy, he That's right. he grinded he grinded it up per se, and and but, you put all those elements together. Yeah, Lee's attitude made up for the lesser talent than he had with Darren. Darren had an unbelievable talent for playing golf. Lee didn't have quite the same talent. Obviously, had a very good talent, but yeah, but not quite the same. But was stronger mentally than Darren was. When Darren finally won that Open Championship, you know, obviously it had to mean everything to him to to have that achievement, especially in his forties. What did it mean for you in your part of that journey and accomplishment? It's interesting because I knew how important the the Open to Darren was. You know, he was he was an out and out links player. He was born born and bred on links, and you know, he he knew that his best chance of winning a major was the Open. And, you know, to get it when he, it, it looked like it had passed him by was was amazing. And, yes, I knew exactly how much he meant. And, and obviously, after his wife had died in 2006, it probably meant even more than it would have done. But even even if she'd have been alive, it would have meant everything to him. And to you? What did it, would that yeah, look, mean obviously meant a lot to me because, like I say, you, you know, you've gone every step of the way with Darren and no knew how good he was and you know how qualified to win a major he was and like I say it seemed to have passed him by and uh, he won in Mallorca about two months before the Open and he won because a guy uh, I think one of our guys I think maybe a guy called Chris Wood who at the time we managed and I think he messed up and let, let him down to win but but that was even that was a big thing because he'd had a couple of years in in sort of like in, of averageness before that and, and so suddenly came up with this win and then went on and won the Open which you know was amazing but to me sort of you're always happy when they I see all the work they do not everybody sees the work and the torment they go through from the fact that you know a hotel room. 5,000 miles away from home can be a very lonely place and just keep putting the last and Mr. Cook. And I see all that and I talk to them and you know when they're not, they're not right and, and struggling. So you know, you know, when they, when, when things come right for them and it goes the other way, you, you, number one, you're relieved 
and number two, you join us because that's that's why we're out here, isn't it? To to sort of help them win tournaments. It, it was a popular win. We were on a on a golf road trip driving back, listening to it on XM radio, and I, I mean, we were fist pumping as he was coming down. I think like. He's such. He was so well liked over here and so well respected. I think he had like the entire golf world pulling for him to get it done on that back nine, right? I think everyone wanted to see him win that. I, I really do. Like it was just such a great victory. Um, I think you're right. There was. There was like yeah. everybody in that car was like, "Come on, Darren! Like you can do this, right?" I think it's just. It was yeah. such a great. Uh, uh, he's not finished. He's still playing well, but I mean, like such a great. Uh, uh, accomplishment for such a world-class player for such a long period that people were happy yeah. for him to see him get over that finish line. Yeah, I agree. He, and he, he is very popular over here. Um, Hugely. Oh, yeah, people love him. I think I think he's as popular here as he is in Britain. And um, it's partly because I think people like the fact that he's a bit of a maverick. You know, there's, there's a cigar or a cigarette there. There's a beer there. And he, he talks openly about going out in a pint, you know, when he's won. And I think, you know, so the American public relate to that. Uh, I'm not saying the British public don't relate to it, but, but it seems like the American people, and uh, the fact he's Irish too, I think, makes a difference over here. Irish people are, are viewed differently than English people in America, I think. So... It's, it's the whole thing, but yeah, I think uh, he's very popular, and it was it was a massively big deal that day. He's really found some form too on the Champions Tour with uh, Sandy Armour uh, caddying for him, and he's just been on fire. What what's clicked in his game for him to kind of, I mean, turn it on to the level that we all thought he would, you know, be performing out out there as long as he still hits and as good as he still is. He's he's really found his form of late, playing some great golf. Yes, I think he. I think he had a bit too time, too much time um, away, not away from the game, but away from properly competing. You know, five years ago when he's in the run-up to being a, a, a senior, a champions tour player, and I think you know he, he spent a lot of time fishing at Abaco, and probably not as much time practicing. And so when he hit the ground to become a Champions Tour player. I went to his first event um, in Seattle. I'm not sure he was quite as ready as he, he probably would have wanted to be. And I think it's probably taken him a year of adjustment to to actually come to terms with the life out on the Champions Tour. And, uh, his wife, Alison, has joined him now, travels with him nearly every week, which I think is important because Darren was always a, a man's man that, you know, sort of he'd, he'd play it at balls for an hour and then we'd go to an Irish bar. Um, and, you know, so that's not, that doesn't happen on the Champions Tour. So the guys have got their, their wives out there and he's settled into that way of life. And I think the other thing is he's, uh, you know, I always told him he played better when he was fat. And um, as you can see, he's put a, he's put a fair bit of weight on. And, uh, we had a discussion in October that I said, well, you know, why don't you, because I'd seen you'd finish rounds, you know, every week it was like a bogey on the last three or two bogeys on the last three. I said, why don't you, you're allowed a car, why don't you travel on the car? So he started going in a cart in October and he's made about a million dollars thing. And uh, all you see now is Darren driving down the edge of the fairway with a foot hanging out the cart like 
any club golfer would. And with a plume of smoke coming out the car. <laughs> well, it makes sense, right? Like you're 50 years old. Like it, it does if make. If you're going to do this for three, Absolutely. yeah. I mean, you're you're he's a strong guy, but if your legs are that much more fresh on yeah. Sunday afternoon, I mean. Take the take the advantage, right? Sandy can walk. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. It's, it's, and he, he said he said to me after he won Hawaii, he said, "Langer's using a car, so this to say that that's actually certified. What he's doing is okay." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I if I was a Champions Tour player, I'd be taking the cart every time. I mean, like I yeah. said, if you can keep your legs fresh and get more rotational. And it's interesting to say about his golf swing. Do you think him being? I mean, he's just naturally a big, thick guy. You think that's more of his? natural God-given golf swing is kind of having that bigger, stronger body. And it's just, it's a more efficient, it's the golf swing he kind of naturally has. And so by having a little bit more weight or mass on him, it's actually good for his swing. His golf swing hasn't changed a lot lot in 30 years. And he's, uh, it's interesting at the moment. I stayed with him for four days, two weeks ago in Abaco. And, Talk about an idyllic life. I mean, he has got an idyllic life. But he gets up at half past five every day. He goes in the gym for an hour. For an hour. Um, then he comes back and he has three or four cigarettes and a couple of cups of coffee and looks at the internet. Then he goes and practices for three hours. And he comes back and has another coffee and a couple more cigarettes. Then he then he goes back in short game, chip and pop, pop. And then he goes out and plays the golf course at Abaco at 12.30, o'clock every day, comes in, goes to the bar, beach bar at 5, bit of food, few drinks, bed at 7.38 every day. That's his life. If he doesn't fish, he, sometimes he has a day off and goes fishing, but that's what he does. And uh, it's interesting. He's been coached right now, and he's been coached for about four months. And you might know the guy's name. I can't remember his name. Um, but... Bizarrely, he has never met this guy. He's been coached over the internet, Instagram, this, that, and the other, and he's never met his coach, which I find absolutely incredible. Well, when I'm noticing his golf swing, to me it looks more mm-hmm. like he used to play where it's more rotational and he's covering the ball more. Where he looks That's like right. he's not trying to hit it as high. It looks like he's just, That's it. it's more of that link swing where he's covering it. And that looks like his natural yeah. golf swing to me where he covers the ball with his body so well. And that's, to me, where I can tell that just from watching his career that the swing looks more like what I would think of of the Darren Clark, heavy ball flight, great links player type of golf course or, or golf uh, player where that it's it's that heavy links ball flight he kind of has going. He hits it high enough, but it looks very rotational, very much covered to me. That's exactly it. And I said to him, when, when he was telling me what this guy had told us to do, I said, yeah, I said, you were told that 25 years ago, and you did it. You're swinging just like you used to, which is, which is actually an unbelievable uh, compliment, isn't it, to, to sort of find that he's actually swinging 25 years later, a bit like he did when he was, when he was a kid. It's not quite as long a swing, but he, he gets the ball out there. He's got two sons that hit it way past him. Tyrone and Connie, he's the youngest son who doesn't play golf. I played with him, and... Uh, he hit 402 yards on one all this time when I was there. The, the athleticism yeah. got passed down a little bit, huh? The uh, fast twitch muscle fiber is there. That's it. That's it. 
I was going to ask you about a young Rory too. Is when you first saw him and and, and heard about him and witnessed it when he was even before he was a, a pro. Was he one of the most talented, or if not the most naturally talented golfer you ever saw? Uh, I met him at thirteen on Darren's Foundation, and he was a tiny little kid, and I think he was three handicapped then at thirteen, which was now that's not that abnormal but then it was very abnormal and and he was a cocky little guy you know he, he stood out because he was cocky and uh, and then we sort of remained involved with him and Jerry's dad and um, I would say that from 13 to present day he's the most naturally gifted golfer I've ever seen and he still is he still is it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, obviously the talent is there of, you know, if he starts working with somebody or, what, you know, what's he got to kind of do to find it again or whatever it is here. He's a little bit erratic lately, but I always think there's just so much natural talent there that just going to be a little of this or a little of that, and he's going to be right back. And I think if when he is on, I, I think he's the best player in the world if you look at the whole thing from between driving yeah, he's and the He's fun to watch, isn't he? I mean, you know, he's yeah. He has a lot of golf shots. He he. <clears throat> I spent had a couple of good chats with him last week at the match play, and he was noticeably working ridiculously hard. Um, he lost the first day when Poulter was seven under, I think, when he beat him, and then he went and hit balls for about two and a half hours after, and and then later in the week he was hitting and. And I said to him, I said, you know, are you working out? He said, yeah, well, there's a big tournament coming up. And I think if if, if he's if he's able to go under the radar a bit at Augusta, I think he, he, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't find a bit there and, and contends. Because um, to me, out of all four majors, the one he should win is the map. Mm-hmm. That gosh, that golf course has to look perfect for him with the high draw and yeah, right. Draw. I mean, absolutely. If he's yeah, soft, I mean, and he's, he, for some reason he doesn't play firm golf courses very well. He plays soft courses very well. He's going to get one of them. He's too good. Uh, I was going to ask you about the Masters. Besides Rory, is there any other picks that you're you're kind of watching this week of guys that are trending the right way that you think could have a really, really strong Masters showing? Don't you think there's an awful lot of people can win at the moment any week? You only have to look at the match play last week and, People, everybody was beating each other, and you know, sort of. I hadn't seen uh, Scheffler play before, and he's he's apart from the fact he looks like Sebi about fifty percent of the time, um, he has his own way of playing. I quite like that. Uh, you know, he sort of it's, he, he looks as though he's he's quite creative, and 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 then the same breath he suddenly muscles it down the fairway. Guys like that aren't afraid to win anymore. So there's got to be like 20 guys, 30 guys that can win next week. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pin it on anybody. I would think uh, if a European was going to win, I would say that um, somebody like Danny Willett will play well. You only have to look at ex-champions. They usually play well. They know how to get round. He finished eighth last week. You know, something like that. And then JT's obviously going to have a chance. Uh, yeah, playing great, just won a big golf tournament. 
Well, well the question of like, are the young, <clears throat> excuse me, young guys long enough? We can take that out of the equation anymore, right? Or they're all long, so it's not like you know he's a quote unquote mid length hitter, so he's going to struggle there a little bit. I mean, any of these guys, thirty five and under, bomb it for the most part. So, yeah, I think there's. You know, there's and then the question always becomes, I mean, the guys are long enough and how much on that golf course is experience, like you're talking about with Danny Willett, right? And you're right, there right. is a trend line where guys who play well there seem to play well there. And then how much is that experience worth? Is it a shot or two around where they're comfortable on the course and they've they've been there eight times and so so there's an advantage over like a young guy like, you know, Scotty Shuffler? That's you know, how much of experience pops in on that equation to, to win it? I think the experience uh, matters an awful lot. And you only have to see that, I mean, even now, Freddie Couples and Langer do themselves justice in the Masters. Um, and Larry Mize, you know, they, they get round. They know the way round. So I think, you know, sort of people like Danny and <clears throat> maybe Sal Swartz or people like that, they, they have something. Cabrera, Cabrera always used to come back and play well out of the blue. Yeah. So the the, master, the the guys that have won the Masters and been around the Masters a lot definitely have a bit of an advantage. And then the young guys have the advantage of the fact they eat it so far. Yeah, it's going to be a great tournament. Like I said, I agree with you that the talent's never been better. So it's going to be, you know, pretty wide open of, you know, like there's probably, you know, 40, 50 guys who could legitimately win it. It's going to be, yeah, well, it's going to be fun this thing, year. It, it'll be nice to have some spectators back in because I thought it was very, very different last year and, Quite, quite flat. And it even made the course look average, didn't it? Because you're used to seeing the course lined by spectators, so the, the fairways are framed. And suddenly last, last year there was nothing. And it didn't look right and it didn't feel right. So it'll be, it'll be great this time to get back to something like normal. Yeah, I agree. And the excitement of the back nine with, with the patrons being a part of that equation, right? I mean, yeah. I think that's, yeah. you need that to get the full effect of the Masters and, and, and to see, you know, there's nothing better on the back nine at Augusta. So, it was interesting last week at the Man's Play. There were, I don't know how many they let in, maybe 8,000 a day, 7,000 a day. But the ones that were in were unbelievably quiet. They, there was, you know, that people weren't clapping good shots. And it was strange. It was a very quiet atmosphere, even though there were, like I say, seven or eight thousand people in. So I hope there's, I hope there's a few roars at, at the Masters. When when there's a few roars in that valley, there's nothing like it. Well, I wonder too if it's do people not. I mean, it's such you're, you're just starting to do this again. Do people not know how they should react? Should they be able to yeah, yell and cheer and possibly. blow their right? I, I can understand how people might be, for lack of a better word, conservative, where it's like, well, am yeah. I supposed to do this, or am I supposed just to stand here and you know be quiet with the whole? How, how do people come out of this COVID thing, you know, socially and act around each other? I'm sure there's a little bit of that yeah. dynamic to it. I think there is, and uh, the good point about it is that the mashed potatoes seem to, seem to have gone. Yeah, I'd be fine with never hearing that one again, personally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, European, you got a couple more and we'll get you out of here. But if we could make you the captain of the ship of the PGA Tour and the European Tour, you're running the whole organization. How could those tours work better together in the future? And, and is there a future where they are going to be more aligned, making the events coincide and, and working more as uh, on the same team, per se, for lack of a better word? Yeah, without a doubt. Um, 
I, you're probably aware that the PGA Tour bought 10% of the European Tour mm-hmm. um, at the end of last year, which was a, a, a definite saviour for the European Tour because they had had a tough time with COVID because they don't have the same cash reserves the PGA Tour have. So in that way, it was good. I think what that did was accelerated cooperation between the two tours from maybe three to four years to, to now. And I'm, my guess is, I imagine that next year, I think there'll be half a dozen co-sanctioned events on the European tour that will be jointly co-sanctioned with the PJ tour. And uh, I think that's probably a forum possibly in the next four or five years for it to be one tour. Um, and it'll be PJ tour Europe, and it'll be a viable, very good tour that will be an understudy to the PG, proper PGA tour over here. And there will be cooperation between the two tours, and there already is. I mean, Jay, Jay Monaghan's on the European Tour Board of Directors now, which I think is a fantastic move for both tours. And in the era of um, the Saudi Gulf, League, the Premier Golf League and um, various things like that. I think it's accelerated the two tours coming together to combat that and protect what they have already. So would it be some of like maybe the Rolex events or the the, the PGA Championship over in the UK with those imagine, kind of maybe I imagine become... they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're right? the ob- yeah, they're the obvious ones. Uh, the Scottish before the Open the BMW because it's like RTPC, uh, probably Abu Dhabi in the desert because that already has a few Americans playing it anyway. Um, I would think I would think there'll be a few next year. And it, what that will do is give some Europeans a chance to get on the PGA Tour because, you know, they win, they'll get the same rights as a winner over here. And it will give the opportunity to some of the Americans to grow their brand internationally and um, I think all all in all for golf fans and the game it'll be a very good move yeah and if I'm an American player like at some point in time I want to go play in some of those iconic championships on the European tour right like I would I imagine those guys would love to have you know like you said the the players and the BMW in their trophy case right I mean yeah I I, I think uh, it'd be I have the utmost regard, whether you love him or hate him, I have the utmost regard for Patrick Reed because he's bothered to travel and play and he hasn't always been on appearance fees like people think he has. And, you know, he's he's actually gone out and played. In, he played in, I played with him in Turkey, in the Pro-Am in Turkey. I played with him and Keith Bellick. And, you know, he's played in the desert. He went over and played the last one of the year, the TP World. You know, maybe he got a couple of air flights in a hotel, but he certainly didn't get fees for everything. He did for some, but not everything. And I got you got to. I I admire that. I admire people that take their bag of clubs and go and play all over the world. Yeah, I like. I think it'd be very cool if some of those iconic events to see the best players in the world and not having a penalty. Well, if, you know. There's a limitation or get get that feel that the BMW is good as like a world golf championship. I think it's such an iconic event to, to see the all of those guys going after that trophy. I think it would be really, really cool for golf. So I hope they make I, it. I agree. I agree. 
Final question for you. Um, two or three best golf courses architecturally in, in the world. And, you know, there don't have to be tour courses, but courses you've played where, you know, they're just fantastic. And if you could play golf at these two or three places the rest of life, you would be happy. And what makes those courses so special in your opinion? Well, I'm very lucky because I've played a lot of them. Um, and uh, let's break this down a, a bit. I, in the UK, my favorite links course is Royal Birkdale. And because I think Royal Birkdale was probably the first natural stadium course because of the way the dunes are and people follow the golf on the side of the dunes and there was no need for bleachers and stands everywhere. There were the, the access points were the, the sand dunes. So that, that, and it's a great way out. And it's near to my home. So I grew up playing it from about the age of 14. And then inland courses in the UK, um, because they're very different, obviously, links and inland. Sunningdale Old, because it's the nicest walk in golf. I mean, just, just amazing walk. And the Champions Tour, the, the senior, senior open, senior British opens there. And that, that, that will be a nice week to watch too, to see a lot of golfers you've heard of play a golf course that, that is just sensational to walk around. Over here, um, I'm lucky enough to play Augusta. I'm lucky enough to have played Pebble Beach. Uh, I'm very lucky. I'm a member of Liberty National. <clears throat> and I've played Pine Valley quite often before it came a bit too tough for me. Um, and I think, you know, sort of Pine Valley is, is a, almost a, a golf, a golf pervert's golf course. You know, it's, it's got so much history and, so yeah. much, so so many nuances, and such a nice place to go and play golf. That that would be a special one. Obviously, Pebble's special, like St Andrews Old Courts. Uh, I I always feel that they're a bit similar. And then uh, the one that probably I, I I enjoy playing the most and the nicest experience was Shadow Creek. I was lucky enough to go to. Uh, Vegas for a couple of the big fights and played at Shadow Creek and I thought that was a fantastic experience to play there. But the golf product in America is so good. Was, you know, whatever, whatever I mention, you're gonna you're gonna miss a few out. And like I say, I think there's probably 50 iconic courses in America that I haven't played. So would would you take Pebble or Cypress? I've never played Cypress, so I take Pebble. You've never. <laughs> <laughs> really, you never played Cyber. I assumed I assumed you'd played out there. No, 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 no. I've got I've got friends in high places, but not every high place. Well, you should put that one on your list. It's uh, I'm sure I've been fortunate well, to play it once. Well, I can still play. Yeah, it's boy. If you told me Pebble or Cypress, man, is that like an impossible choice? Like both, please, right there. I mean, they're so. I love Pebble Beach too, and. The Cypress experience is just incredible. It's, uh, yeah, I've heard. it's such good golf out there. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time. I knew I would enjoy this conversation. Um, you know, really, really, I know you're busy. So thanks for taking the 45 minutes and, no, uh, pleasure. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, let's uh, keep watching Darren play some good golf out in the champions tour and, uh, yeah. we'll be, uh, we'll be in contact. So thanks so much, Chubby. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks very much for having me.